Alex Garber with ESPN for, for the players. I know you talked about keeping the joy of the game, but I'm curious. It's a long season, right? And you guys have had the target on your back the entire time, the win streak being number one. How do you handle the unique pressure that comes with that? How do you keep the joy for so long when anxiety seems like a thing that could very easily set in? Well, the only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. And any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. And um, I think Coach has said this before, but joy from the Lord is really the only thing that can keep you motivated, um, uh, just in a good mindset, uh, no matter the outcomes. Thankfully, we've had a lot of success this year, but if it was the other way around, uh, joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you embracing those memories, moments, friendships, and all of that. So uh, I would, that's really the only the only answer to that because there's no other way that softball can bring you that um, because of how much failure comes in it and just how much of a roller coaster the game can be. 1,000% agree with Grace Lyons. Um, I went through that my freshman year. I I was so happy to win the college. I've talked about this before, but I was just so happy that we won the College World Series, but I didn't feel joy. I didn't have – I didn't know what to do the next day. I didn't know what to do for that following week. I didn't feel filled, and I had to find Christ in that. And I think that is what makes our team so strong is that – we're not afraid to lose because if it's not the end of the world if we do lose. Yes, obviously we've worked our butts off to be here and we want to win, but it's not the end of the world because our life is in Christ and that's all that matters. Yeah, um, I think a huge thing that we've really just latched onto is eyes up. And you guys mm -hmm. see us doing this and pointing up, but we're really like fixing our eyes on Christ. And that's something where like they were saying, you can't find a fulfillment in an outcome, whether it's good or bad. And um, I think that's why we're so steady in what we do and, and our love for each other and our love for the game, because we know this game is giving us the opportunity to glorify God. Mm -hmm. And um, I just think once we figured that out and that was our purpose and everyone was all in with that, um, it's really changed so much for us. And I mean, I know myself, I, I've seen so much of a growth in myself with um, once I turned to Jesus and I realized how he had changed my outlook on life, not just softball, but understanding how much I have to live for, and that's living to exemplify the kingdom. And I think that brings so much freedom. And I'm sure everyone's story is similar, but we all have those great testimonies that have really like, shown how awesome it is to play for something bigger. Um, and I think that's just what brings me so much joy. And no matter the outcome, whether we get a trophy in the end or not, we're, this isn't our home, and I think that's what's amazing about it is we have so much more. We have an eternity of joy with our Father, and I'm so excited about that. And, yes, I live in the moment, but I know this isn't my home, and um, no matter what, my sisters in Christ will be there with me in the end um, when we're with our, our King. So. Sorry about that. It was not y'all's fault. <laughs> All right. I tell you, uh, many of you actually sent me that clip this week, and uh, I, I had already planned the first time I saw it. I was like, I got to show this. This is the perfect illustration. And what's really amazing, and I want to thank, really, and we all should be thankful that they didn't cut this off. Many times when they're doing interviews like this and it moves towards the Lord and all that, many times they cut that language, they cut it out. 
And it's so refreshing to hear these young ladies, almost to the point it'd be hard to pull against them. But just a couple of days ago, they actually won uh, the Division I softball championship. So these ladies, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 1. We are beginning our series, uh, the, the, the uh, Joy Ride. And uh, today we're going to be looking at something as it relates to we are a masterpiece. But before we do, let me just uh, tell you one thing. What you have on your handout is actually a little sticker. So you can pull that off. You can stick it somewhere if you'd like. I put it on my cup that I normally carry when I play golf. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I didn't release any clubs this week when I played golf <laughs> because I don't throw clubs. I release them. Okay, it's more spiritual. But um, choose joy. And if there's any left here today, if y'all don't take all these, I'm going to get another one. I'm going to put it on my steering wheel. And I'm just going to choose joy everywhere I go. I had one person tell me this morning they're going to take this sticker and put it on their spouse's forehead. <laughs> so these are really handy. So uh, I encourage you to take that sticker off and take it home with you this morning. Paul in the book of Philippians is demonstrating that no matter what a believer in Christ faces, joy can be a reality in his or her life. Now, I know that all of life is not a game like these ladies were talking about. Some of us are in some very difficult circumstances, some that are life-threatening at times, things that, in which relationships that break our hearts. We know that was just a game. But really, the same idea that they shared in the video can be the same idea that we can have when it comes to the issues of our life. And one of them in particular talked about the fact that joy can only be found when we're in Christ. And that's the key. Whether you're talking about a game that's lost or won, or you're talking about a life-changing uh, event or a life-changing news that you receive in your life, those things are brought about through the fact that we are in Christ. So Paul, what's amazing with Paul, he's going to make reference to joy, like I said last week, 16 times in this book or this letter that's only four chapters. And the most ironic thing is he's not writing this at some resort or on the Mediterranean Sea. He, he's actually imprisoned. And yet he's talking about the language of joy. So look at this series introduction there on your outline. Joy is the unshakable assurance that God is in control of all the details of our lives the confidence that ultimately we can trust God in everything that comes into our lives and the determined purpose to praise him in all things. And y'all, again, uh, when I saw this video, I thought that is a perfect definition and that's a perfect illustration of that definition. And so it's, it's amazing how God just kind of brings that about, isn't it? So today we're going to talk about joy ride. Choose joy, you are a masterpiece. Now, one of my favorite paintings I think I've ever, uh, I've ever seen as far as a, a, a master painter has painted is this uh, portrait right here. Many of you know that this is called the Storm on the, Gal on the Sea of Galilee. It's painted by Rembrandt back in 1633. It's, it's one of the most fascinating pictures. Okay, it's not on there, but over there. If you count the people on, on board the ship there, there's 14 when you count them, which is, I find kind of interesting. 
Of course, you have the 12 disciples, and you have Jesus, that's 13. But did you know that Rembrandt put himself in the portrait? He put himself in there. There's 14 if you count. He's actually the one, if you can see it, I don't know if you can see it on the screen here, but it's actually the one where he's actually looking straight ahead. That's Rembrandt. And he basically was basically saying that he uh, puts himself in there when it comes to his own faith. Now, this piece, I didn't know this until I started researching for the sermon, was actually stolen in 1990 and has never been found. It's the biggest art theft in history, and it was stolen right out of a, 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 a museum in Boston, Massachusetts. And so what you see here, again, are 14 people. Rembrandt puts himself in there, and it's considered a masterpiece because it comes from a master artist. Now, here's what's amazing about this. The language the Bible uses today that we're going to look at uses the imagery of the fact that we are a masterpiece. I want you to think about that. We are a masterpiece. And, and I know so many times we talk about who we are. We're just sinners saved by grace, and we are. We know that. But we're also considered a masterpiece. And that's what Paul is going to use as imagery as he speaks to us this morning. Where does he get the idea? Where do we see this? Well, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work, a masterpiece, in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So look at the introduction this morning. In the life of a church and an individual, God will finish what he begins. There is joy in the life of a person who sees God doing a good work in their life. There's joy, there's fulfillment, there's satisfaction. Just several weeks ago, we talked about how we've seen God's hand on this church since the 1970s as he's brought about some of the things that we're seeing today and the fruit of all the things that were laid by those in the past. And, and we see this, and we're starting to see this masterpiece come together as it relates to this church. But guess what? The only reason it is that is because of the individuals that have surrendered themselves to the promises and purposes of God with them being the masterpiece that he's put together and he's put us all together in this little church called Pleasant City Church. Now, the thing I want us to really take note of is what is going on with us as individuals this morning. And so the first thing is the progress of a good work. And the first thing Paul seems to point out is the confidence of a good work. So he begins this letter in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, like he does most letters that he's written. He writes, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. He's identifying himself. Timothy appears to be with him. And he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. With the bishops, that would be the leaders of the church, and the deacons, those servants, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes right in to this personal message to them. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy. He's basically saying, when I think of you, when, I, when I'm capable of bringing you before the Lord, it is with great joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing. 
When the gospel began to work in your heart, when God began to move in such a way, he's confident that he started this process in you. But here's what's interesting. The object of our faith, I want you to think about this, is not the salvation. The object of our faith is in the God. The God who provided the salvation, which really lends itself to the idea that he's the master artist. If you were to say, okay, we are the, we're, we're the masterpiece, well, who's the master artist? It has to be God himself, and that's the language we see here. So God created, think about this, let's look at the big picture. He created the world in which we live, and yet that world fell into sin, Disarray, dis, uh, desperation, and destruction became the economy of this world. That's what we began to see play out. And then God sends his son to the world to redeem the world. It's literally the idea of reconstruction. So the creator went from being the creator to the redeemer. And individuals will now be born into this plot or this plight of sin. But then it says, that's when God began to do a new work in us. And so we see God created everything. When we get to the end of Genesis chapter 2, what do we find? We find that he says, it's good. He's satisfied with it. It's perfect. Sin comes in. It mars the creation itself. It mars the people who are in that creation, Adam and Eve, because of their disobedience and as a result, God goes, between, goes from being a creator to a redeemer. And that is where we're seeing even his greater work, which is in the redemptive plan through his son. So we see the confidence of a work guaranteed by God through Jesus. But then we see the continuation of the work. Of the work. So, so we, if you, if you really want to think about it, we're a masterpiece that has not been completed yet. If you're breathing today, the masterpiece has not been completed. How many of you are thankful for that? <laughs> because there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, right? So, so basically, in Philippians chapter 1, look at verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you. Now, the phrase we just read is actually written in what's called the perfect tense. Now, some of you are like, oh, here comes the Greek stuff. I knew it had to come out somewhere. But the perfect tense is fascinating because there's not anything like it in English, okay? But here's what it means. It means an act completed in the past that continues into the present and has a lasting effect that reaches into the future. Now, think about that. God began a good work in us. He's, he's, he's working on a masterpiece. It began when we came to know him as our Lord and Savior. That's where it started. And guess who brought the salvation? He did. He started that work. It continues to today. And its far-reaching effect will reach until eternity. That just blows my mind. I don't know about you. But that's what this verse is saying. That's what this phrase is saying. So basically, here's what it means. We're a work in progress. Paul is saying basically the same thing the writer of Hebrews is saying in Hebrews chapter 12. Looking to Jesus, the author, the beginner, and finisher of our faith. It, it means it's going to come to a completed picture. It's going to happen. 
This all means that your life is a work of God, and the only way you, your life can reach its potential is through you surrendering to the work of the Spirit in your life. Now, I want you to think about this. You have a part in this masterpiece, and it's nothing more than you surrendering to the brush, brush strokes of the Holy Spirit. Now, what did, we, what did we learn about the Holy Spirit? Jesus said he had to lead that the Comforter may come. That's a, a word for the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he's going to teach you. He's going to guide you. He's going to convict you. He's going to do all these things. And when you really think about it, based on the context of what we're reading, the Holy Spirit is, is the, given the, uh, the brush strokes of what we end up looking like. He's guiding that work. So what's our role in this? To surrender to that work. Surrender to the work. But we see that God is continuing the work. Next, we see the completion of a good work. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he has begun a good work in you, will complete it. Some of your translations say, bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, here's where it gets very interesting. This work that began in you at, at, at salvation, who provided your salvation? Jesus did. He started the process in you. He's going to continue the process in you. And then one day, he's going to put the final touches. When will that be? When we see him face to face. When we see him face to face, when, when all these things begin to happen in our life and we get to that point where we see him face to face, that's where it will be completed. It's not completed now, nor will be as we live in this world. So the God who began a good work in us will complete it. As we yield ourselves to God, he works his plan in and through us. So God's primary work in us is to change us. For some of us, to change our attitudes, change our motives, change our emotions, change our destiny, to work his glory through us and make us more like his son. So if you were to say, what is the imagery of the portrait that God is painting in and through me? It's a picture of his son. That's what he desires the portrait to look like, in and through you. Now, what's the process he uses? Well, many of us know this verse, Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to this world. As long as you're being conformed to this world, you're not looking like the portrait God desires you to be. You will never be, be in that masterpiece that he desires. But be transformed. How do you do it? Well, here's the process. Renewing, the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. The, the, part, the idea of the renewing of the mind is a process that takes place in all of us. It's literally a picture of restoration, taking us from our old dead selves to life that we find in Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so all this is happening through this process. Now think about it. We didn't do anything to receive our salvation. He started it, he continues it, and one day he will complete it. We are and always will be a work in progress. Now, here's what, this is a good way of looking at this. Salvation is a three-fold work. The, the work God does for us is the salvation. 
The work that God does in us is our sanctification, and the work that God does through us is our service to him, our service. And so he brings about all these things. The end of verse 6 again, the day of Jesus Christ. This is the day our salvation is completed. The portrait is completed. When we see him face to face and we'll be glorified. Now think about it. One day our salvation, again, will be completed. It's going to be completed. The Bible calls it glorification. When we see him face to face, it will be completed. That's what he's talking about here. So people observe what is presently happening, but God looks at his people as what they will be when he finishes that work in them. Now, how many of you ever heard the phrase or heard this when, when, when Jesus hung on the cross, he actually saw us in our sin? And that as he sees us now, he looks through the lens of his son. That's how he sees us. It's not our righteousness that fulfilled the salvation that's been granted to us. It's his righteousness. It's his work. It's everything he's done and doing and will complete in the future by way of Jesus Christ. So he'll complete his masterpiece. Next, we see the proof of a good work. If a good work began in you, there will be proof that there is a good work happening, as was the case of Paul. So number one, the thing we see under this is the claims speak of his devotion. And again, this is a reference to Paul. So in Philippians chapter 1, look at verse 7. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Notice the phrase, you all. Now, a good southern word for that, we as southerners tend to, to merge all that together. Y'all, okay, that's what he's saying, all y'all, <laughs> okay? Now, did God place us here to only reach a certain group of people, or did he call us to reach all people? Now, here's what you need to understand about the apostle Paul. Paul believed that the Jew was God's people. He was a Pharisee. He was someone who believed that anything good that God was doing in this world happened through the Jews. He despised Gentiles. He did. Matter of fact, he saw Gentiles as being working against God. Paul, now this is very interesting about what Paul believed, and a lot of people don't know this. Paul believed that the Jews, if they got their act together, could usher in the Messiah's return or the Messiah's coming. And so what happened when Christianity came out of the blue, all of a sudden, that's why Paul wanted to destroy Christianity. Because it was working against what he so desired that the Messiah would come. And so by doing that, that's the reason he went on the attack. But what we find that's very interesting is this. Once God moved in Paul's heart on the road to Damascus, his heart began to yearn and, and, and began to want to see a great work. Not, not only happen in the Jewish community, but the whole world. God changed his world. God changed his perception. God changed everything about him in that moment. So then, as Paul was talking about the converts there at Philippi, in Acts chapter 16, here's what we learn about the converts. The first convert there in that region was Lydia and her household. A slave girl, a jailer, 
All these began to come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And they were outside of the Jewish community. Now, as Paul, we need to have a heart for all people. There's not a place in the Christian community or in the Christian heart that allows for prejudice. There's no, no place where that is allowed, where that is seen. That's not a heart that's even close to the heart of God when we hold prejudices in our hearts. So his devotion is to all. Next, the chains speak of his deliverance. Look at verse 7 again. He says, inasmuch as both in my chains. Now, how can chains speak of deliverance? Paul, many people believe that he was chained to Roman, official, to Roman soldiers. And, and, and so basically, he's there in his chains. Now, how can that speak to deliverance? Because Paul was not chained to just a Roman soldier. Based on the very first verse of this letter, he was first chained to Jesus himself. The terminology he uses there is this. Look at verse 1 again. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. The imagery is there is that they're chained to the master. Chained to the master. So he was in, he, he, the bondage he has in Jesus allows him to have the freedom everywhere else. That's literally what he's talking about. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. And so there seems to be a picture of, of bondage. But as it relates to how he operates in this world and the way we can operate, it's complete freedom. No matter where you find yourself, even in a prison cell, there's complete freedom because it's a work of the heart. No matter what kind of circumstance we face or dilemma we find ourselves in, Paul proves to us that we can be free in of anything and have joy in the midst of it all. Next. The courts speak of his defense. Verse 7, the last part. He says, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The word defense here is where we get the word apologetics. Apologetics. And it's really, apologetics is really someone who, who, who can use language to defend the gospel. That's literally what it means. And so, so basically he's talking about the defense of scripture. Now one thing we know about Paul. As I've already said, he was a Pharisee. Before he, he had his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, the thing that was very interesting about Paul is he knew the Old Testament better than any of us will ever know the Old Testament. He knew the nuances. He knew it all. He probably had a lot of it memorized. Most Pharisees did, especially when it came to the law. And all of a sudden, he's faced with the resurrected Jesus in which everything he knew and thought he knew is getting ready to be turned on its head. Because now he's going to have a new encounter with Jesus. After his encounter with Jesus, the Bible says he's literally going to go to the Arabian Desert and spend three years going back through the scriptures. He's literally going to go, go back through the Old Testament. Everything he thought he knew about it, all the implications, his perceptions. He's going to go back through those things. He's going to study. And what he's going to find is that the Messiah is truly who? Probably It's Jesus. And he's going to come to that conclusion. God's going to take him there. So he came out of the desert saying this, literally, I claim to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
All this that I held back here, the scriptures that I memorized, everything I thought I knew has been turned on its head. Now that really the only thing I know is Jesus himself and him crucified. I'm, I'm taking all that into that one statement. On three different occasions in scripture, when witnessing, Paul gives his personal testimony. Just telling what God did in his life. We see that he did that in front of a governor, a king, a Roman official in the book of Acts. So when he says the confirmation of the gospel, Paul was establishing the evidence of the gospel was at work in his life. So the proof of that salvation works in us no matter what we face. Every time Paul was in front of those officials, it was basically a defense of the gospel to be able to present the gospel in a powerful way through his own testimony, even though in that defense, he possibly could be facing his own death. It's really interesting. Next, the passion of a good work, his addition to a good work. The latter part of verse 7, you are all partakers with me of grace. Paul did not consider the Philippian church as a mere spectator church. He saw them as partners. He saw them as those that were helping him get the word out. It's just like with the Lopez's that were up here this morning. We're partnering with them to, to expand the kingdom of God, to bring the gospel to these children who, who otherwise don't seem to have a chance. That's what we're supporting. Paul was saying, you weren't just spectators. You got in here with us. You came alongside of us. You prayed for us. You gave. So the Philippian church enjoyed the same blessings as Paul because of their passion for serving him. Secondly, his authority in a good work. Where does the authority come of what Paul is sharing here? Philippians chapter 1 verse 8. For God is my witness. What he's saying here is that God knows the sincerity of my heart. This is something real. This is not a bunch of words. Now, don't look at anyone around you, but how many of you know a lot of people that says a bunch of words, and they seem very confident with those bunch of words, but none of it pans out in life? You ever know people like that? There doesn't seem to be any kind, there's, no, there's just words. And that's all they are, it's rhetoric. Paul is basically saying, I'm sincere when I tell you what I'm telling you. I'm going to see it come about. And he's very clear on that. Next, we see his, his affection in a good work. Verse 8 again, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, the word affection in Scripture is a very strong word. It, it literally means activities of the heart. The activity of the inward parts where sympathy and compassion comes from. It's the opposite of apathy. Apathy where we just don't seem to care. Paul is, I mean, everywhere you look in Paul's story, I'm just going to be honest with you, read all his letters. There's not an ounce of apathy in Paul's life and in his ministry. Not an ounce that's there. What you find is affection. So when a person receives the life of Christ, listen, they receive the love of Christ. Romans 5, 5. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 
That means there's a, a new love. There's a new affection that we should have when we come to know Jesus. Affection is a good work that relates to its passion and zeal. It was a display of affection that originated with Jesus Christ himself. It was not what Paul did for Jesus, but what Jesus did through Paul. That's where our affection should come from. Next, the, power, the prayer of a good work. The prayer of a good work does not rise from a mere sense of duty, but from a deep inner desire. Something that is real. For, for, if, if we were to make a, no, a need known here today in the church, that, that really, that we feel like if this need is met, it will really impact the kingdom of God. And you just kind of say, well, since no one else will do it, I'll do it. Is that the motivation we see here? No, we're talking about someone that says, yes, this is necessary. They see through the lens of the big picture. They see themselves as a masterpiece, that this may be an opportunity where God can do a work in and through them. And so Paul's not talking about some mere sense of duty because no one else will do it. They, he's basically saying there's an inner desire to please God, expand the kingdom, and do whatever's necessary. So what are you saying here? So Paul is getting ready to pray for them. And we're getting ready to read some of this prayer. Now here's, here's something that's challenging to you and me also. How many of you pray for loved ones in your life? You pray for them. How, how does that prayer sound? Dear God, I pray you be with my children. Keep them safe. Especially since they're going to camp this week. And just, Lord, just speak to the heart. Um, help me to not celebrate too much when they're gone. No, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> no, but really, just sitting there and just contemplating prayer over someone. Paul's prayers. Here's what I've noticed. Paul's prayers for people didn't, doesn't sound like the prayers I have for people sometimes. This is just as convicting to me. Listen to how Paul prayed. He, first of all, Paul prays that they be affectionate. And, and, and listen to what he prays. Look at, verse, uh, look at verse 9. Okay? This is the whole prayer. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. How many of you ever prayed that way for someone? How about this? That you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without defense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That sounds like a whole, that's a whole lot different than help Aunt Sue in her surgery tomorrow, doesn't it? That sounds a lot different. Paul is talking about the deepest needs need, that need to be met in their life for the full realization of them to become a masterpiece in Christ. That's what he's talking about here. And that's really where our prayer needs to go. But look at the first thing. He prays that they be affectionate. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more. The picture we have here is a love of, love of God in Scripture. It's not a stagnant pool or a small trickle. It's an overflowing river that breaks its banks. But where, where's he talking about it at? Where does it come from? He's talking about this, that their love abounds more and more. It's a very interesting verse. And still more. And so basically, where's it being born out of? It's being born out of the knowledge of knowing Jesus. That your affection for Jesus would cause you 
more and more to know more about him because knowing more about him brings a greater affection for him. You ever thought of that? To learn more about him allows us to have a greater affection for him. That's the reason the songs that we sing need to open our eyes up to a greater affection for who he is. When we read the word of God, we learn more about him. It creates a greater affection for who he is. And that's what we need to understand. And Paul's praying that that would grow. Next, he prays that they be discerning. Verse 9 again, in this I pray that your love may abound more and more. How? In knowledge and all discernment. Discernment. It's the idea that love must be tested. It speaks of constant assessment of right and wrong as it relates to God's truth. You see, that's a big problem we have in our world today. People aren't really getting to the truth of the matter of Scripture. They're settling for a peace. They're settling for what they want to see. And they'll pull that apart and they'll hold it up. And yeah, I love God because of this small piece. And many times they don't see that piece in the context of Scripture and the original truth that's intended by it. So true love, here's what he's saying. True love must discriminate between what is good and what is bad, between what's important and what's not important, between what is temporal and what is eternal. Basically, Paul wants him to live and love for the right things. Next, Paul prays that they be sincere, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Sincere literally means to be tested by light. What happens, the language here he's using is, back in those days, they used pottery for about everything. And literally, to determine if a piece of pottery can do what it's intended to do, to, to test it and see if it's, if it's, if it's not, that it won't break easily, they would hold it up to the light. And if they saw cracks in the integrity of the, the cup or whatever, they would know this is not a very good piece of pottery. It's not going to last. In some cases, it won't even do what it's intended to do right off the bat. And so there he's talking about the sincerity. Test the actions of your life by the standard of God's truth. Be real in light of who you say you are. Don't be a stumbling block. Be sincere. Lastly, he prays that they would be fruitful. Look at verse 11. Being filled with the, first, with the fruits of righteousness, which are by... Jesus Christ. There's that language. The righteous fruits of Christ is his righteousness. Let that be displayed in you to the glory and praise of God. It means to demonstrate good character. And the key is to be filled with the character of God. Or namely the character of Jesus Christ. To know him even more. To identify with him even more. That your affection may grow. That your discernment may grow. That your knowledge in him will definitely grow. So, the glory of God, listen, magnifies who he is while the praise of God rejoices over what he has done. Both of these are needed to be in the reality in our to be a reality in our life if we're going to experience joy. So here's the application. Do you see the proof of a good work progressing in you? Do, do you see the brush strokes of the Holy Spirit? Do you see where he's putting on some, possibly for some of you, some finishing touches? 
Have you ever thought about that loved one possibly laying there on their deathbed? Kind of morbid in some ways, isn't it? But you know what's really getting ready to happen there? If they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, God did a work in them many years ago for most of them. He continued that work in and through them. And in just possibly days or months from now, that masterpiece is about to be completed when they see him face to face. Y'all, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there should be a good work. There should be brush strokes by the Holy Spirit in your life. That that picture becomes clear and clear of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But more, more precisely, did that picture become more and more like Jesus, that good work. Do you have a passion for a good work to progress in you? Have you ever awakened, maybe in your, in your uh, devotional life, and said, this right here, God, this, this, this is what I see is missing. Thank you for putting me on to this. This is what's missing in my life. I, I want this in my life. I want to have joy when it makes no sense. I, I want to be able to lift your name up high and through it be fulfilled in that. Give me that. These are brushstrokes of the Holy Spirit. So here's the question. When others observe your life, is it obvious that they see the prog progression of a good work in you? Do they see love, sincerity, fruit? Do they see joy? Does, do, do others see a master artist, God himself, creating a masterpiece in and through you? Maybe here's a good question. Have you ever seen that take place in someone that you know very well? And you've seen God just do an amazing work in their life. And you look at that and you say, man, this is something, it's a pretty big deal. This is amazing what I'm seeing in this person. They're not like they used to be. They're different. There's something happening here. Paul, I want to close with these verses. Paul is telling Timothy, the masterpiece is about to be completed as seen in my life. And here's what he says about it. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. He says this, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Think about that. That's the artist at work. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, something he sought all his life, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. <laughs> this is not just a journey I'm going to take. It's going to be a journey the rest of those who follow me are going to take. Where it becomes obvious that the master artist has done a great work in me and through me. And it's about to be completed. Man, what a strong word in his word this morning. I want to ask you, if you will, to stand to your feet. Father, we just come to you right now. And Lord, it's amazing to see what you're capable of doing in the life of a person who surrenders their will to you. Father, I thank you that there's many of those examples in this room right now that I've, you've given me the privilege to see up close and personal. And Father, I just thank you for the way that you're creating that masterpiece in us.
Father, I know there's people sitting or standing here today who don't see themselves as that. They see themselves maybe as a, as a failure. They see themselves under the guilt and shame of their past. Father, help them to realize that a great work has great potential in them. And that work will only come through you. Even Paul, Lord, said he had to quit focusing on the past and those things that he had done. Even as much as crucifying or, or putting to death and executing those who were part of the church, the very thing he had a, a love for later. Father, if he can be forgiven, if he can move on, surely any of us in this room, no matter what we've done, we can move on, where we can see our life as a masterpiece. Father, I just pray that you have your way in these moments, Father. We're getting ready to have a moment of here at the invitation. I don't know where you are. There's going to be counselors up here at the front. I want to encourage you to do what God's called you to do, whether it's to pray, someone to pray with you. Maybe you need to get around this altar. Maybe you're going to stand there where you are. Just contemplate what's been shared today. Contemplate on what the brush strokes of the Holy Spirit is doing in you right now. Let him reveal that to you, even in these moments. Would you do that? Would your heads bow and your eyes closed?